0: You are live with Get Connected, Mike Eggerbo in studio today. We've got uh, a great show, a lot of tech to talk. Uh, in a little while, we'll be learning about drones, where you should fly them, how you should fly them safely. We've got uh, our good friend, Ted Kritzonos uh, on the line to discuss some of that. We also talk with the folks over at NVIDIA. If you've been thinking about, uh, you know, getting into the streaming world, not just Netflix, but there's literally hundreds of different uh, apps, streaming apps out there that you can get all kinds of content to on demand You'll want to stay tuned for that segment as well because we'll be talking about their NVIDIA Shield box that hooks up to your big screen TV that allows you to uh, get all these content channels and stream games from your computer. It's super cool. We'll also be talking with the folks at MasterCard. They've got some really neat innovations uh, happening when it comes to payment technology. I know that doesn't sound exciting, but you should listen to this segment. We're talking about MasterCard robots gas pumps, and vending machines as well that can all be controlled with your smartphone and your voice. Uh, And it's what's happening in the future. In studio, I've got uh, my guest host, Graham Williams. Thanks for coming in today, Graham. Happy to be here. A lot of weird news uh, this week, tech wise. I don't know if you saw this one. A Wisconsin company is offering to implant chips in its employees. And so far 50
1: of their employees uh, have signed up to take this on. And this is 50 out of 80 some odds. So it's actually a fairly decent number of the group. So explain to our listeners, why would they want a chip implanted in them, in their body? (laughs) This thing, it's it's a tiny little chip. It's about the size of a grain of rice, and it gets implanted into your hand and uses a technology called RFID or Radio Frequency ID. So these chips, basically, they're short-range radio communication, and uh, essentially when you place them near a reader, you can do stuff with them. So if you're used to tapping your Interact card, or if you've got a card at work that you tap in and out of your, uh, to get in and out of access control, this is the same sort of thing, except now you can take the card out of the equation and you just sort of wave your hand like magic. So for companies that have,
0: uh, you know, those security doors where they have to flash the card, they would just be able to hold their hand up now because that's where the thing is implanted.
1: Yeah, that's right. And essentially, I mean, there's a couple of different ways that you can encode information on this thing. The safest way is to keep all of the stuff in a database. So the the thing that's in your hand is actually fairly it doesn't have a whole lot of data in it, makes it a little less hackable. But these are something that th- the question here is, you know, can somebody go ahead and maybe put a, a scanner under your hand at some point, scan that number, and then be able to clone your hand as it were. Kind of an interesting thought.
0: Would you do this? Would you have a chip implanted in you so that you could turn
1: things on and open doors? I'm already really disappointed that I don't.
0: Have... <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy though. Um, but like you said, 50 of these employees and you said how many? 87?
1: Uh, it's 50 out of 83. 83. That is a huge uptake. Honestly, I mean, I can see the reason for it. I I, I take transit to work every day and every once in a while, I will leave my transit pass on the kitchen counter. And I think to myself, wouldn't it be great if I had the transit pass just implanted in my hand that that has gone through my head on more than one one occasion. It's so funny. I was uh, traveling this week and
0: out uh, with some clients and one of the clients before I even saw this story was just, we were talking about passwords and, you know, security cards. And she said, you know what? if they had some sort of chip that I could implant uh, in my body that would allow me to access
1: all this, I would do it. With it, without a moment's hesitation, I'd be, yep, go ahead. Let's get it done. Especially if the company's paying for it.
0: Well, you know what? I think there's going to be a lot more of this uh, in the coming years. Uh, You know, we'll have to uh, see how that all (laughs) goes. Keep Uh, an
1: eye on it. Make sure it doesn't get out of hand.
0: I saw what you did there. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Disney is using facial recognition to predict how you'll react to movies. Uh, they're using deep learning techniques. They have this research team to track the facial expressions of an audience watching movies in order to assess their emotional reactions. It's something called factorized variational autoencoders, and it's a, a, an algorithm that's so sharp that it's actually able to predict how a member of the audience will react to the rest of a film after analyzing their facial expressions for just 10
1: minutes. This thing's kind of cool because, I mean, it's going to do a few things for us because we always have these sort of micro expressions. Uh, There's sub vocalizations where you're about to say something, you don't quite say something. So being able to get that sort of data through screenings it's it's interesting because I mean, typically in the past, it's, you know, Disney and company have relied on surveys, you know, how did you feel about this? What was your most memorable moment? And now they don't even need you anymore outside of actually just watching you do this because your opinion was probably colored by things throughout the film. So it's a really interesting way of going about getting more accurate data, which is exactly what they need to make the best movie possible.
0: So it's interesting how they went to about this. Uh, they used a 400 seat theater e- equipped with uh, infrared cameras to film the audience uh, during 150 showings of nine mainstream movies, which included things like Big Hero 6, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Zootopia and The Jungle Book, uh, which gave them a data set of 16 million facial uh, landmarks uh, by the you know over 3000 audience members uh, over the uh, the course of the, uh, the research. Uh, is this crazy? Is it?
1: Are they turning movies into truly formulas now? Well, I mean, this is something we've actually seen well in advance. I mean, Netflix right now uses an algorithm to determine, based on your preferences, what type of things you like, and then we'll recommend things to you. But they've actually already used that data to start creating their own stuff. House of Cards, the American version, was actually built because they recognized that people liked the people involved, so they went out and made it. This is taking it one step further. The real question here is, you know, for, you know, uh, actors and for directors, the creative control that they have in making decisions and making movies, is that going to be stripped away as they get more and more data that, you know, this choice that you're about to make, we've got data that says that's not going to fly. It's going to make it a bad movie. So don't do that. Does that creative control then just go away? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're we're done here. Uh,
0: And and quickly here, Graham, uh, as well, uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, but Google is admitting that they have too many music streaming platforms. I've got Google Play, YouTube Red. Uh, and now they're talking about actually combining them. I don't know if you saw that.
1: Google has too much of everything. They they give me a headache, right? We've got, we've got YouTube Red. We had YouTube Music. We have Google Play Music. Two out of the three. What about Vivo? Is that them too? Yeah. No, that's actually a service on YouTube, but oh, it doesn't it. belong okay. to, to Google. Okay. But I mean, you know, we, we, we look at that. Then we look at their messaging services. You know, they've got Allo, Duo, Hangouts, Wave. It's like, honestly, somebody at Google, what they need. What, what Google needs is one person to go, okay, all of you working on that project, we're all going to work on all of this, this one project right here because you're killing people out there.
0: Is that part of their success though, that
1: they they just try all these different types of uh, I th- uh, businesses? I think they've had some success out of it, but I think people are starting to lose trust. I mean, when you used Google Reader and it went away, when you used Google Hangouts and it went away, a lot of people are looking at it going, well, I don't want to get into this particular part of the Google ecosystem because they're going to drag it out behind the shed and put a bullet in the back of its head. I don't want to work on a service like that.
0: But there are so many streaming services now uh, as well. And I don't know if they're all going to last, especially in the music side, uh, you know, Graham. Spotify is obviously huge out there. Apple Music, uh, Juggernaut. I don't know if you've seen uh, the HBO series, The Defiant Ones yet. I have, yeah, fantastic. Jimmy uh, Iovine and- uh, Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre and their rise through the music industry to basically creating the company Beats, the headphones and Beats Music, which was then acquired by Apple music for $3 billion. If you have not seen that series it's on HBO four part documentary series. It is fascinating. Uh, and it's just interesting to see that whole transition just from, you know, the old way of doing music to the new digital way. Well, when was the last time you bought a song? I, I just subscribe to music. Now I'm yep. on Spotify and I do Apple music as well. And you know what? I have Deezer. It's <laughs> <What laughs> so I- like
1: 300 bucks a year, you've got all the songs.
0: Yeah, but, you know, how many of these are going to survive? You know, we saw Ardeo was bought by Pandora, which is now trying to be sold as well. Like, how many of these guys can survive? Like, how long can Deezer survive?
1: It's a a really good question. I mean, Deezer, they don't even know who Deezer is. Well, they've got the high resolution thing going on. The one for me is SoundCloud, right? Where it's, you know, it's sort of been this bastion of piracy, but it's got this amazing community and it's, they don't make any money. So how long can they last? When we come back from the break, we're talking drones.
0: If you've been thinking about getting a drone or you have a drone, we'll give you the lowdown on where you can fly it, when you can fly it, how fast you can fly it. Uh, it's actually useful information. Uh, also, later on the program, MasterCard robots. What's that all about? Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Egerbo here in studio. We've got a lot more tech to talk, so you'll have to stay tuned. On the line right now, we've got our friend Ted Kritzonis. He is uh, our tech expert out in Toronto. Here to talk about drones. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thanks, Mike. Uh, drones, uh, more and more uh, in the news. They're, they're selling uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of these uh, guys. But uh, a lot of concern still over regulations and safety. And a lot of countries and jurisdictions are trying to wrap their head around how to uh, let consumers have these uh, these devices without crashing into airplanes and buildings and people.
2: Well, okay, the worry is about crashing into Planes and buildings. Uh, To to my knowledge, there has not been an uh, an incident, uh, especially in Canada, of a drone making any kind of contact with an airliner uh, or even a helicopter, for that for that matter. So I understand, you know, you want to mitigate a situation like that before it could possibly happen. Totally understand that. I, I would like to think most people who are drone flyers would be careful to not go near a plane. Um, but you know, I, I I see what they're saying. They're saying, okay, you know, we we want to avoid and mitigate any potential hazards that might happen, and that includes, you know, creating a bit of a distance even with people, as opposed to just objects. Uh, but I I think the way that they're going about it is uh, just uh, I, I think it's it's too much. It's over the top, uh, and I don't know that it actually really changes anything uh, because this is also going to be very hard to enforce.
0: Well, I, I'm looking at some countries. Uh, I read uh, this week that the UK is looking in bringing in legislation that would uh, make people who purchase drones actually have to register them and take uh, some specific courses on how to use them uh, and and safety with safety issues uh, as well.
2: Yeah, I mean education. I'm told before. I, I don't have too much of an issue with that at all. Like if if there is a situation where uh, even if if retailers can offer. Uh, some sort of education on this, um, you know, might be. This might be a good uh, opportunity for uh, for photography stores, uh, especially since they're going to have clients and customers that are interested in doing something commercially with these drones. And of course, commercial uh, flight with drones has a different set of rules, but that's a whole other story. Um, so, if you're going to educate people on flying these things, fantastic. I, I don't know that you need to go as far as a licensing model uh, like driving a car. I think that might be a little too much but certainly if uh if there's some sort of baseline that people can uh can go to uh then at least have a basis to start with but uh beyond that i, I don't know i mean i i think enforcing these things are going to be difficult uh putting your name on a drone and, and and that's fine i don't have an issue with that i mean i, I can understand that setting certain limits for for speed okay fair enough and uh, at least they dialed back some of what they, the government uh, dialed back some of what they initially announced in March. So they made it a little bit more reasonable. But still, there's a lot of red tape uh, involved here when you look at the
0: full list. So you said they dialed uh, back some of the, uh, the restrictions. Uh, what are we looking at now uh, as far as rules here in Canada as we know it?
2: Well, initially, so they wanted a nine kilometer radius from any airport or airstrip uh, or helipad. Uh, they've now amended that so that it's more like five kilometers uh, from an airport, and it can be even one kilometer or one and a half kilometers away from a helipad. So they they separated the two uh, and and made it a little bit more reasonable. Um, For the most part, I I think even if – I mean, I'm not trying to (laughs) encourage anybody to break the rules here, but I I think even if you're four kilometers away from an airport and you're at a a very low altitude – Generally, I don't think that's going to be a problem. So the altitude limits as well is another thing. Uh, you know, they don't want you, you know, operating above 300 feet. Again, it depends on what kind of drone you have. So I know that it sounds all confusing because they've separated drones into five different categories, and it depends which category you're flying. Most consumers are going to be flying either the, what they call the small drones or the very small drones. Those are most of what we see available in stores and online. They fall into either of those two camps, and so the rules are more or less the same between the two, but there are some minor differences depending on you know altitude, distance, and uh, and speed, and whether or not you can use them at night or not.
0: Well, uh, I know a popular drone is from DJI. Um, they're one of the big drone manufacturers. Their their Phantom series of uh, drones. What category do they fall into?
2: Yeah, so they, they fall into either one of those. So uh, if, you're, if you're flying the Magic Pro, for example, that might fall under you know a, a small drone, or something very small drone, and then the Phantom series might fall under small drones. So it, they, they, they definitely, that's their bread and butter. I mean, those two sizes are pretty much where they're at. And that explains why I think they're spearheading a petition uh, to lobby the government to look at this from a more holistic point of view, which would
3: include
2: both drone manufacturers and drone flyers, I think that was one of the main criticisms uh, that was facing Mark Arnaud, the transport minister, initially when he made this announcement in March, was that he did not really consult with those two particular groups and focused more on those who were either afraid or complaining about <laughs> the existence of drones. So this, you know, these amended rules, you could argue, are a bit of a concession to those two groups, but at the same time... Uh, I think DJI is not satisfied. They've actually publicly said that that they're not, you know, they're not pleased with. They think that they're too draconian these new rules, and so they're uh, they're lobbying uh, to get them uh, amended again, uh, with the help, of course, of
3: their customers.
0: Um, I know in the previous ones in March, uh, you had to be a certain distance away from like buildings and animals and people. Did that change at all? Was that fifty meters? I believe.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> So you have to be 75 meters away from buildings, people, and animals. I mean, they, they, they literally jumble those things and, and, and bundle them together. Uh, that is not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, you, you still have to be a, a bit of a difference. You can be like 250 feet away from a person. That's basically 75 meters uh, from a person. Now, they're saying that if it's a lateral distance of less than that, that is permissible. You can do that uh, as long as the speed is not higher than, say, you know, uh, I don't know, like 15 or 15 to 20 kilometers uh, an hour. So, and uh, that you're at a lower altitude of about, you know, I don't know, 250 feet or less, uh, you know, it, it so it basically as long as all these things are in place, then you're okay to fly near a person. Um, but uh, again, you know, If you're within the zone, I think you're okay. Like, if you're in the zone of of all these different metrics, I think you're all right. Uh, And especially if you know what you're doing when flying the drone, then I think you're okay, too. So that's why I say that some of these things are arbitrary when you look at them on paper. uh, And then in practice, uh, you know, they're they're not necessarily always realistic. But, you know, it is what it is.
0: Are people going to be able to fly uh, these drones over their neighborhood?
2: Yeah, so that's that, that's another thing. I mean, you, you want to fly in your neighborhood, but you're near you're near homes, you're near people. So, can you do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can if the altitude is very low. Like if you're flying in your, in your backyard and your altitude is maybe you know 20 feet, I, I, I don't think anybody's really going to complain about that, uh, unless there's a privacy issue involved. You know, when you're trying to like spy on somebody or something like that, then obviously that that's a whole different set of circumstances. But if you're just flying, you know, twenty feet up because you want to take a selfie or something of your whole family at a barbecue, I, I think that's okay. I don't think there's any. I don't think anybody's really going to complain about that either.
0: Yeah, but I think where people want to do is fly it way up there so they can see the entire neighborhood oh, and their neighbors. Sure, yeah,
2: well, for sure, right? And and of course, you can set a an altitude limit. The, the drones in the settings generally allow for for an altitude limit. Uh, you can set now. It's usually set by default. It's usually about five hundred feet by default, sometimes a little more, and you can then uh, manually change that to a lower altitude so that at least the drone doesn't go above that in case you're worried about it.
0: Ted, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, Twitter
2: and Instagram, at ByTeddyK, and ByTeddyK.com, where I aggregate some of the content that I work on for uh, the various outlets I work for.
0: Thanks again for joining us, Ted. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to be talking about the NVIDIA Shield, the ultimate streaming box for uh, TV channels, uh, Netflix, and also for streaming games uh, throughout the house. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo in studio today. I've got my guest host, Graham Williams, with me as well. Still lots of uh, tech to talk. On uh, On the line right now, we have Chris Daniel from NVIDIA. Thanks for joining us today, Chris.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on
0: wanted to talk about uh, a cool device, a, a streaming box uh, that you guys have, and I call it the, the Cadillac of streaming boxes, the uh, the NVIDIA Shield TV. Uh, a lot of people are looking at uh, cutting the cord and looking at some of these uh, streaming TV boxes, the Rokus, the Apple TVs of the world. Tell our listeners what makes yours different.
3: Yeah, that's right. So Shield, it, Shield is like the Cadillac of streamers. It's the most advanced streamer. Um, so, you know, all of your entertainment is going to be at your fingertips um, and in the highest visual quality. Um, so we support 4K resolution, 4K Ultra HD uh, with HDR, which is, you know, if you're going out to buy a new TV these days, um, there's a good chance the salesperson will be selling you on one of these new TVs that supports 4K HDR. And so we're able to stream that high visual quality to your TV in all these, you know, top apps that have this 4K HDR content now, so the Netflix, uh, the Amazon videos of the world, um, and thousands of other apps are able to stream this really beautiful content uh, to your TV. Um, so that's TV and movies, and then we also support gaming on Shield as well. So we deliver all your entertainment, not just movies and TV, but we include games, and we include a game controller with the NVIDIA Shield as well.
0: Let's just talk about the, uh, the, the gaming side, which I, I think is kind of the interesting uh, part. Uh, what, what kind of games can people play on, a, play on the, the box itself? Like, How do they access them?
3: Yeah, so there's lots of ways to play games. So Shield has a very powerful local processor in it, which just makes the experience really smooth and snappy for everything, movies and TV included. Uh, navigating through the UI is really snappy. Uh, the processor is faster than an Xbox 360 console. Uh, locally. So you can play local Android games on Shield. We've brought a lot of really high-end PC games to the Android platform. Uh, so classic PC games like Half-Life 2, you can play locally on Shield. And then we also have a Netflix for Games streaming service. So you can stream games from the cloud uh, for $7.99 a month, and you get access to a large catalog of games that you can just play anytime instantly. Um, and you're playing those direct from the cloud, direct to Shield, Um, And it feels like you're playing a game just locally. And so it feels like a real game console. We're able to stream games at 1080p at 60 frames per second. Uh, So it's a really amazing experience. Um, And then one way, so our gaming enthusiasts who play games with our GeForce graphics cards on a PC can also stream their games locally in their home from their desktop PC or their notebook PC to their TV and play on the big screen with the game controller.
0: So that's kind of mirroring what they have on their PC, but then they can have it in the family family room or the living room, like in on their huge sixty inch. That's right. And uh, and do they have to have an NVIDIA graphic card to do that on their PC?
3: Yeah, so you need an NVIDIA GTX, GeForce GTX graphics card, um, and then once you have that and you install your GeForce Experience software, uh, you're off and running, and you can stream all your games. You can pull up Steam, uh, Big Picture on your. Uh, big screen TV, uh, play all your Steam games, and then play games even outside of Steam.
0: Uh, As far as the, uh, you you mentioned Android. So this is uh, running the Android operating system like a lot of tablets and smartphones?
3: Yeah, so it's running a version of Android, which is called Android TV. Um, And so it's a 10-foot living room experience of Android TV. Um, So it's a little uh, little bit different experience, but it's designed specifically for the living room, so you have a really nice experience from the couch. Um, all the apps are designed so that you don't need touch. You know, obviously, all the tablet and phone apps are designed to be touch-compatible. These are designed to be navigated with a remote controller or a game controller.
0: How, how easy is it for people to set this up? I mean, there's a lot going on with this particular box. You've got the whole TV side with TV shows, movies, apps, uh, but also the whole gaming side as well.
3: That's right. So, you know, it can be as simple or, you know, as as complex as you want it to be. It can be as simple as a Roku box where you just you plug it in, you connect your Wi-Fi, and you're off and running. Um, Or it can be so much more as well. If you want to make it your home media server and actually store uh, videos on your Shield and serve those to a mobile phone to watch anywhere around the world, uh, you can do that. So you can set up that. Uh, That's through an application called Plex. It's very popular. Um, And then, of course, you can play all your games. You can play local games, just download them from the Google Play Store, which is super easy. Or you can set up GameStream, which is streaming from your PC. Um, so, you know, whether you just want a simple setup or a, you know more complex, advanced setup, uh, we've got something for you.
0: It's uh, I, I know it's a little bit more money than some of these uh, these cheaper boxes and, and and sticks out there. What's the price on this one?
3: Yeah, so Shield is one ninety nine, and it comes with uh, the base unit plus. Uh, media remote and uh, sixty dollar game controller included in that package.
0: That's uh, that's not bad. I think that's one ninety nine American. I, I think that works out to about two fifty or two seventy Canadian. But I mean, if you look at some of the other higher end uh, boxes, like even the Apple TVs, they're getting up there in in the price range as well. But uh, you guys uh, kind of future proofed being able to serve up the four K and then the HDR.
3: That's right, four K HDR. Um, it's got you know quite a bit of local memory. Uh, it's got three gigabytes of RAM, so very high performance. And then the processor in it, again, is, is way more powerful than the other streamers.
0: Where can people find out uh, more information about this, Chris?
3: Yeah, so you can find out more information at uh, shield.nvidia.com on our website. And then we are you know we sell on amazon.com as one of our, our big retail outlets. And then in the U.S., you'll find us in Best Buy, and you'll find us in, in retail also in Canada as well.
0: Thanks for joining us, Chris.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: That was Chris Daniel from NVIDIA talking about the Shield TV, a uh, streaming box that takes streaming to the next level. You can uh, run Android TV, so all your favorite streaming apps like Netflix, YouTube, uh, but also gaming as well. Three different ways to play games. Uh, You can stream games with the Netflix of games uh, type service, uh, stream games from your PC, and also uh, just run some fun Android game apps as well. When we come back, more Tech to Talk. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected, Mike Agarbo, your host here, broadcasting live across Canada on the Chorus Radio Network. want to talk about uh, payment innovation now. We've uh, got our guest in studio. Her name is Debbie Barta. She is with MasterCard Labs uh, and uh, part of the New York Tech Hub that Ma- MasterCard has. Thanks for joining us today, Debbie. Thank you. And uh, your title, uh, Innovation and Startup Engagement yes. for MasterCard Labs. Uh, and it's kind of funny saying MasterCard Labs. Like, what is that all about? I just think about paying with MasterCard.
4: That's right. No, completely understandable. We're the R&D unit within MasterCard. So we look at the things that are disruptive and adjacent to the space to try to redefine commerce globally, given the fact that you know, the next five years in payments is going to be more change and showing more change through commerce than the previous 50. It's a big time in payments.
0: So we have seen a lot of change over the past few years. Uh, you know, Typically in the past, you had your physical MasterCard. Uh, now we've gone to PIN technology and things like Apple Pay and Android Pay. Like, what what's left?
4: Oh, there's so much coming. So it's for us. It's really looking at innovating in the channels where people are already engaging. So it, it could be chatbots through messenger apps. It could be um robots inside of random convenience stores you know all these different things including artificial intelligence and um you know augmented reality virtual reality are all things that we're engaging with to help people have different experiences in what they do every day
0: okay so you said robots how do mastercard and robots fit together
4: yeah it's a it's a logical connection really yes so we have a partner called softbank robotics and they have a product called pepper And she is intended to look, he or she is intended to look like a 12-year-old child. Very unassuming, but essentially we've enabled commerce on the back end of this robot. So we're launching in Q4 at Pizza Huts in Asia, whereby you will walk into a Pizza Hut and order your pizza directly from the app. It's a fun and engaging experience and ultimately helps the business free up the human interaction perspective to put those clients and those customers, sorry, the workers onto more intricate type tasks.
0: So I will go into a Pizza Hut in Asia, and I'll be ordering my pizza from a robot.
4: That's right.
0: And does... <laughs> How secure is this?
4: Oh, it's incredibly secure. So everything is backed by the foundation of MasterPass, which is our digital uh, platform that enables you as a consumer to have a digital wallet. So you can put any card in there, any brand, MasterCard, Visa, or otherwise, into the wallet, And when you're going up to check out with Pepper, for example, you simply pair her through Bluetooth uh, to your app and then you're able to check out. Everything is seamless, safe and secure.
0: So let's talk about some of the other innovations. Uh, I've seen a uh, a Samsung fridge that has MasterPass capabilities built into
4: it. Yes. So another opportunity for us to innovate where people are living. The, The Smart Hub fridge is the center of your kitchen and it enables you to have a nice large touchscreen where you can go in and shop directly from a variety of merchants. So in the case of New York, we have a company called Fresh Direct, which does home delivery of grocery goods. And you simply go through and check out like a traditional e-commerce experience, but it's directly on the front of the fridge and again, backed by MasterPass. So all of your card information is loaded. Your shipping address, billing address already preloaded into the app. It's a seamless click-click and you're on your way.
0: Okay, this scares the heck out of me because I've got three teenagers and they'll be ordering all sorts of crazy stuff.
4: (laughs) They can simply queue it up, but you ultimately have the PIN in order to check out. Ah, So it's PIN-based, you've got the control, but they can certainly ask for things.
0: So some other things I I saw, uh, you have, um, I guess, uh, retail things uh, like uh, vending machines and gas pumps that Mm -hmm. uh, have unattended retail presences now.
4: That's right. And so we're making improvements again in the spaces where traditionally we've had the sort of assumed norm of going up to a gas station, getting out, pulling out your card and and standing at the pump for some time. So we built an app and powered that with the help of P97, which is a fuel pump application layer. And essentially giving the consumer a very easy way to select the pump they're at, given some geotechnology, it knows you're close to pump number one. And you can ultimately check out very simply, again, with the Masterpass app on the back end, powering in, it, in, in the payment and you get out. Pump your gas, and you're off on on the run.
0: I saw a demo of this, and the one thing that intrigued me, uh, apart from like being able to do this fast, because I hate sitting at the gas pump, monkeying around with the card and the, you know, punching my pin and and, and everything. Uh, this was very quick, but also uh, for your customers, you could actually. Uh, Offer discounts as well.
4: That's right. So right there at the pump once you've paired with the particular pump It can push an offer to you or a discount in real time drop the 10 cents off or whatever the discount may be and You're a happy customer. It gives you some nice loyalty and, and stickiness to go back to that station.
0: Okay, Debbie, you've got a crystal ball, and obviously you're in the MasterCard lab, so there's all sorts of crazy stuff happening there. What can we expect to see over the next five, ten years?
4: Some fun things related to the artificial intelligence world, machine learning, virtual reality, all things that may sound like fun technology to play with, but in reality, we take those and apply them, again, back to normal consumer scenarios, where everyday people are interacting with everyday channels and devices, Given the fact that right now there's about 10 billion connected devices around the world, and by 2020 we're expecting that to explode to about 50 billion devices given wearables, connected cars, appliances, and more.
0: Connected cars. Will I be able to order uh, my McDonald's for the drive through with my car?
4: There, and And more. There are so many things you can do.
0: The exciting times we live in. Uh, thanks for joining us, Debbie. Thank you. That was Debbie Barda from Mastercard Labs. When we come back from the break, a lot more tech to talk. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected, and Mike Agarbo here in studio. Got my guest host Graham Williams uh, joining me. But now it is time for App of the Week with Christina Stoyanova. Thanks for joining us, Christina.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: What have you got for us?
5: I have an app that will help you be more secure and private when you are messaging using your iPhone or Android device. It's called Signal. Um, And this app not only provides end-to-end encryption, but it also doesn't um, collect data like, uh, you know, who you're messaging to or the amount you use the app and things like that. Whereas a lot of other apps like WhatsApp collect that information about you.
0: I don't think a lot of people realize that. I mean, so many of us are using messaging programs now. There's like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Snapchat. uh, The list goes on and on. And they are collecting all kinds of info.
5: Yeah, it's really interesting. Even though they may be encrypted and the contents of your messages aren't being read, there is still a lot of information you're releasing just by using the app and who you're exchanging messages with.
0: And uh, this particular app, uh, is it available both on iPhone and Android?
5: Yeah, it's available for both and it's free on both platforms as well. Um, And what's interesting about this one is it's open source. And so uh, you can actually audit the code to make sure that it's as private and secure as you would want it to be. And people have done this.
0: I wonder why uh, we haven't seen more of these types of programs. I just wonder if people are desensitized to the whole privacy thing now. Like we just kind of give our information out everywhere.
5: Yeah, I don't know if we really think about it. I know we were talking about smart speakers um, a few weeks ago, and I hadn't really thought about the fact that this thing could be listening to me all the time.
0: Well, when you think about it, your phone is as well. Like if you've got an iPhone, Siri, if you've got that turned on uh, in your settings, and most people do, it is always listening for, you know, hey Siri, uh, same with Google Android phones. Uh, I just set my iPhone off here. Uh, Google Android uh, phones with Google Assistant. Uh, same thing. It's always listening to, uh, to wait for your command.
5: That's right. And so we're actually transmitting all of this information about our daily lives all the time and sharing it with these companies.
0: And so this app again is called Signal?
5: It's called Signal. It's available for both Android and iOS, and it's free for both.
0: I wonder how they make money.
5: Yeah, you know what? I don't know, but um, I'm just glad it's out there.
0: (laughs) Uh, I came across a really cool uh, app, if you'll indulge me. Okay. Just switching gears. Uh, It's uh, part of the Google Photos uh, world uh, called Photoscan. And this is kind of cool. If you're older like me, uh, you probably don't understand this. Back when we had to take pictures, we took pictures with a film camera and then went down to the drugstore or photo lab and actually had real prints made. Okay. Okay. Your parents might have some of those.
5: I, Mike, <laughs> I've definitely had photos printed. <laughs> uh,
0: so uh, I've got boxes and boxes of these things. So uh, there's you know a few ways that you can get them into the digital world. You can get like a photo scanner or have them professionally scanned. But this particular app works in conjunction with the camera on your smartphone. And the cameras on smartphones are so good now. So essentially, you launch this app and you take a picture of the photo, and it uh, it automatically gets it to the right way so if, even if you take the picture crooked it automatically writes it itself up. Uh and also it gets rid of any glare uh as well and takes out uh any kind of uh noise uh or or what have you on the
5: picture. Have you tested this, Mike? It's cool, yes. Okay. So the first thing that I think of is I, uh, I often scan my receipts using my phone when I'm submitting expenses. Yes, And I've noticed that if my angle's even slightly off, they look a little bit distorted, right? Yes, And you can't always get the perfect angle because you're human. And no. so how does this app handle that?
0: Uh, it just automatically takes the image and it, it has edge detection. So it knows where the edges of the photo are, and then makes sure that it's completely lined up.
5: Interesting. So does it correct?
0: Yes. It's Google. It's Google Magic.
5: It's Google Magic.
0: Yeah, and because it works with the uh, the Google Photo uh, app and that whole world, uh, any of the photos you're taking are actually automatically backed up to Google Photos for free.
5: Well, that's pretty cool. Do
0: you use Google Photos?
5: I don't. And uh, someone sent me a photo recently using Google Photos. Yeah. And I was completely lost. (laughs) <laughs> I needed to share it out after, yeah, and it was just an, a disaster of epic proportions. It took me forever.
0: Well, again, uh, that particular app is called Photoscan. Scan. Uh, works with the whole Google Photo world. Uh, if you've got a you know a box full of old photos, this is uh, you know a pretty simple way to get uh, them digitized so you can share them on uh, you know things like Facebook and maybe even send them with uh, that uh, super secret Signal messaging app. There you go. Looks like that's all the time we have left. Don't forget to hit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. We've got uh, lots of videos and stuff up there. And uh, you can get uh, to our Facebook page as well. uh, Just search for Get Connected uh, Media and uh, you can interact with us. We uh, are always uh, wanting uh, great story ideas, so we'd love to hear them from you. For Get Connected, I'm Mike Agarbo. And thanks to uh, Graham and Christina for joining me in studio today. We'll see you again next week.